0: coming up
1: on Art Palace. And it's a story about a woman named Eliza who has is escaping across the frozen Ohio River, jumping from ice flow to ice flow, leaving bloody footprints behind carrying a child. This is a story that Harriet heard in Cincinnati.
0: Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Abigail Zhang, marketing manager for the Harriet Beecher Stowe House. So how's your, uh, how's your time time stuck at home?
1: well uh our son will be three in two weeks Uh and we have an eight month old also
0: oh my gosh i didn't realize you had two now
1: yeah so she was born last july
0: oh okay Um,
1: so i mean basically all i've done since she was born is try to arrange childcare. (laughs) yeah and uh now we don't have to do that but uh we have to figure out how to do our jobs
0: right do both at the same time yeah yeah
1: and obviously my husband works too. So, so it's it's been okay. Today's rainy, which is not ideal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cuz you can't send them outside. We rely
1: a lot on the outside. We thankfully we are uh, we're in a house that has a yard. So,
0: Yeah, that would be a bummer. Yeah, I had I I guess it, I don't have kids and I don't think about these things a lot, but I realized when I started seeing my friends with kids commenting on the stress of, you know, Uh, for people with older kids having to maintain their work at home full-time jobs plus now there are full-time teachers as well um i know and i'm just like oh yeah that's insane like that's impossible like i couldn't imagine you know i've been my working at home has been actually probably more busy than my regular work in the office and so i couldn't imagine on top of that being like also juggling something like that. So yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I feel like
1: my work has ramped up also yeah. because now we're only online and I do the website and the social media. Yeah. And
0: <laughs> so what's your, what's your, what's your title there?
1: So I'm the marketing manager. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm half of our one and a half paid employees. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we're time. Like, and we've got like 30, 40 volunteers, but, um, it's the executive director and me. Oh my In gosh. terms of paid staff.
0: I assumed it was very small, but I did not realize it was that small.
1: <laughs> yes. Very small. Um, which I think is a little tricky now that we're in this space where everyone is online. Cause to a certain extent, everyone looks the same size online.
0: Yes, that is true. So
1: yeah. it's like, Oh, well, why can't we do all these things? Oh, because we have no people. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, and even that's a thing to us. I mean, even, you know, you have finite resources and and it's like, even if we are probably one of the largest arts organizations in the city, we're still small compared to the Met, you know, or these other museums. But, you know, we're also holding ourselves up against them to compare what we're doing, you know?
1: Yeah, now we're getting a handful of people at all these organizations to now become the face of the whole institution is kind of crazy right. to happen yeah. in the time of a week.
0: Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of like very fast, very quick. Let's do this, Let, you know, on our end. And I'm sure that was the same with you. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you're basically the face.
1: <laughs> I mean, we're trying. My Our director has done a great job. She, let's see, a week ago, I was like, okay, can you give me just like do phone recordings of kind of your standard tour stops in each of the rooms of the Mm. house. Right. So now I've got those eight videos lined up, but I've got to process them. I have to caption them. I have to find out what our password for the YouTube account is that we never used.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Isn't that like, that was probably set up like how many people ago? And oh Oh, yeah, there was
1: two videos on it. Including one that happened while while I was on my maternity leave, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know we had this video on here."
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh my gosh. Oh, the fun of of working right now. I mean, I shouldn't complain. I'm sh- so many people have it so much worse. That's right. right?
1: We've I've, you know, my job is pretty stable, and yeah, same here. We've got food and a place to live, and.
0: Also, this is totally what I actually really love doing. Like, I absolutely would rather be doing this right now than probably, I don't know. I was going to say spreadsheets, but I actually love spreadsheets too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Preparing
1: materials. I'm, loading art (laughs) cards
0: yeah i don't necessarily love having to sit at my desk and plan things in fact i'll plan things out in the museum a lot so i have an excuse to not be at my desk yeah i'm gonna go out into the galleries and you know take my ipad and write ideas down and work there because i i'm i'm more productive not at a desk yeah actually
1: i mean that's the huge benefit of the the art museum it's just such a pleasant place to work
0: yeah, we should mention we haven't talked about like the fact that you used to work there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a bad job at sort of like introducing you um, and sort of saying who you are and what you do. So um, why why don't you tell us about how you kind of uh, your time at the museum and then how you ended up where you are now?
1: Sure. So the Cincinnati Art Museum was the first place that I worked in Cincinnati after moving from Boston, where I finished grad school. Uh, I did my graduate practicum in the learning and interpretation department and really loved that. Um, At the same time, I was expecting our first son. So those kind of wrapped up at the same time. And I took a few months off just to be full time with him. And then eased back in with some contract work, doing the Sunday afternoon gallery experience tours back at the art museum. Um, I did visitor services during Van Gogh. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> at like you, seven, you are an angel. Seven, for eight that. months pregnant. Um, actually, no, like all the way until he was born in mid-April. So, um, yeah, I was like sitting on a stool taking tickets. <laughs> Yeah. Um yeah, and then I was looking for another opportunity in the city and came across this opening at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House for part-time marketing and education position, which mm-hmm. is actually a great fit for my background because mm-hmm. I had worked in higher education, marketing and admissions during grad school and even before that. So, it's been really great to kind of merge these two worlds which was what i had been hoping to do and it's i'm just so thankful that it's worked out to have the type of work that i wanted to do in the type of schedule that i wanted to have
0: yeah yeah hold on i'm opening up my notes because i made them and then um <laughs> i my ipad went to sleep so no I'm oh, like, oh yeah I'm no worries done at this. yeah um so how uh tell me a little bit more about the harriet beecher Stowe House. Um, like, how long has it been a museum?
1: So the house itself was built in 1832. So it's very old um, <laughs> and at that. So at that time, Cincinnati is on the early side of its kind of population ramp up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going from fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people to you know, 25, 30 years later, you're over 200,000 people. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, that early time. Um, it was part of the Lane Seminary. So, the Lane Seminary was in Walnut Hills, and this is the last remaining property of it. So, this was built as the president's house on the campus of the seminary. So, it was part of the campus through the Civil War, then a family. Um, called the Monforts, if you you may know Monfort Heights. Um, The Monfort family lived there from 1865 until the late 1920s. So three generations of Monforts lived there. And then after the Monforts moved out, it became a boarding house in Walnut Hills, which at that time uh, was a primarily um, African-American business district. And so it was a boarding house and a tavern the tavern itself was also listed in the green book, the um, green motorists guide for safe places for African American travelers during the Jim Crow era, both northern and southern states and then starting in nineteen forty three a community or a community group came together of both um, black and white individuals that wanted to save the house uh, as the kind of neighborhood was continuing to develop and they wanted it to be not only a memorial for Harriet Beecher Stowe and the work that she had done and the impact that it had had throughout the country. um, But then they also wanted it to be an African-American community center. And so that's sort of how it developed Um, kind of from that point. It also became connected to the Ohio history connection, which used to be known as the Ohio historical society. So Mm -hmm. we are one of their 50 some sites throughout the state of Ohio. Okay. Um, and it's run by a nonprofit called the friends of Harriet Beecher Stowe house. And that's had a few different iterations. Um, but the current group has been, um, running it since, um, 2003, 2005
0: in there, you know, um, People have sort of forgotten that March is Women's History Month uh, due to all of the news and the sort of shift in everybody's focus. So it's sort of been like, oh, yeah, that's right. This was supposed to be Women's History Month. And there's really like, I I feel like almost nobody is talking about it or there's sort Mm -hmm. of no there's been very little talk about it because just everybody's mind is on other things. So I kind of, you know, wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, and you know, for people who don't know why she's so important.
1: Yes. A lot of people have heard the name and they don't exactly remember what she did. Um, also a lot of times people get her confused with Harriet Tubman. So Harriet Beecher Stowe Uh. was a white woman who grew up in new England, moved to Cincinnati when she was 21, lived here, 18 years, and then moved back to New England. Um, She wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a novel depicting the horrors of American slavery. And this novel ended up having a massive influence all across the country. There is an apocryphal, um, apocryphal story of when Harriet met abraham lincoln which she did meet him we just don't know if this conversation happened but he's reported to have said so you're the little woman who started this great war wow because of her book did exactly what she set out to do which was to wake up white northerners to the reality of enslavement and to the humanity of black americans
0: I think, you know, it's it's so easy to underestimate the power of like pop culture in that way. And this is like such a perfect example, you know, like this was pop culture at the time. Right. I mean, this would be some there was no television. There was nothing, you know, like exactly. It was books and plays and, you know, and live concerts, you know, were sort of pop culture.
1: And her book, many we don't really do this with books now. But it came out a chapter at a time in a newspaper. So it was serialized. So in many ways, it's like when you were waiting for Netflix to drop a new set of episodes.
0: Right. Families
1: across the country are waiting for their, you know, copy of the national era to come every week to see what's happening with all of these different characters, these different storylines that she's depicting. You know, she talks about someone who has started out on a plantation in northern Kentucky and ends up getting sold further and further south and ends up, you know, in Louisiana. And then she tells another story of a family that has started out further south and is moving north and ends up coming up through the Midwest on their way to Canada.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, it. There's like a pretty famous. I, 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 this is the time I admit I've never read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like, I, I, maybe I should. Um, but isn't you've there, you've got time scene, now. <laughs> this is like what I know about Uncle Tom's Cabin, or maybe what I don't know about Uncle Tom's Cabin. But isn't there a scene where, uh, somebody sort of escapes by like crossing an icy river? Yes. That's probably it's the Ohio River, right? Or...
1: Yes. So that story is about a woman named Eliza, and it's probably the most famous little like vignette from the story that if people know right. anything, that's kind of what they know. And it's a story about a woman named Eliza who has is escaping across the frozen Ohio River, jumping from ice flow to ice flow, leaving you know bloody footprints behind, carrying a child with slave catchers like chasing them. This is a story that Harriet heard in Cincinnati from people who helped a woman that had this thing happen to her. Um, The Rankins in Ripley, Ohio, assisted thousands of freedom seekers. And the uh, Rankin family was part of the same Presbyterian circles that Harriet and her family were all also a part of. Um, The Rankin sons attended Lane Seminary. And so Harriet's hearing these firsthand accounts or secondhand accounts during the years that she's here in Cincinnati. And Eliza's story makes it into the book.
0: Mm-hmm. And people, if if you're like me, you might also remember this mostly from The King and I.
1: <laughs> yes. The international influence of Uncle Tom's Cabin has been really fascinating for me to see, even just in our visitor patterns. For this, I mean, we're a small museum that's open four days a week in you know, Walnut Hills. And we have so many international visitors who often come much more informed about uncle Tom's cabin than any visitors from the (laughs) U (laughs) S
0: not surprising. (laughs) Well,
1: in in conversation with them, it's I've learned that because it was such an influential book, it was the, so it was the best selling book of the 19th century other than the Bible. Wow. So, and you know, in the first few months in england it sold like millions of copies maybe not millions maybe hundreds of thousands um but it's so influential overseas that when you're compiling a list of books in english that people should read it's on there yeah so if you know they've got a class that's in english many of them are reading that as part of a required text
0: yeah so when you you see those visitors uh international visitors, what's like the farthest somebody has traveled to get to uh, oh I mean
1: we have we literally have people from i mean every continent all all over I mean we have we have had a professor from Japan that was in last fall um, we've had a lot of Chinese international students are interested in coming. To visit because it's been part of their reading um you know in english classes we have i mean we've got maps that we put up a year ago november and there are just covered with pins from europe south america northern africa south africa yeah we've got i mean we've had we've got australia like from everywhere it's been really surprising
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, is there anything else you'd like to tell us uh, about uh, your work, the museum, anything like that?
1: Well, right now we're in the middle of a restoration project in connection with the Ohio History Connection. So that's kind of an exciting thing that is still going, probably slowing down a little bit um, with everything that's going on right now. But we are working hard to Kind of stabilize the building so that it can stay for several more generations, and then to also interpret some things from the night from the eighteen thirties and forties when the Beecher family lived there, and then also the nineteen thirties and forties when it was this tavern that was listed in the green book to help people see kind of the continuity. In the neighborhood and in these ideas and how they're still impacting visitors today.
0: Cool, cool. Well, now would be the time where normally I would say, let's go out to the galleries (laughs) and look at some art. But we can't do that because the museum's closed and we're both at home. So uh, instead, let's go to the virtual galleries. Um, We're going to look at a piece that uh, you can actually see on our website in our collection and our online collection, I should say. And I will put a link uh, to that in our show notes uh, in the description of the show uh, on your podcast or you can go to our website and find the podcast page and we'll have links there as well Um, and it's kind of fun because when you know a lot of times when I do this I I have to worry about what's actually on view so that we can go see it you know we have a huge collection and and we just don't have space for everything and and works rotate in and out this one is actually not on view right now so the only way you can look at it is through uh, our on online collection. So, this was you know, usually I I pick the works and a lot of times I surprise the people and don't tell them anything about it because I kind of don't want them to do too much research where they just sound like a, a Wikipedia page um, <laughs> but this time you picked out the piece for me um, probably because you you know you knew the collection already pretty well from working here um, and I'm glad you did because I will admit I know very little about this work I have walked past it so many times it was actually on view until very very recently um, and and it was recently uh that gallery has been reinstalled and it's no longer on view uh but it is called i should tell you what it is it's called the fugitive story and it's by uh, a sculptor named john rogers um it's a plaster cast uh so it was you know a multiple that many many people could own as opposed to sort sort of a marble original or a bronze which is a lot more expensive um so you you actually have know a lot about the connections here and actually when you're telling telling. me the story about Eliza in Uncle Tom's Cabin, there seems to be a great connection with that piece as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So I really love this piece um, for a variety of reasons. One, we can talk about that Eliza connection first. So the sculpture has five individuals. There are three men that... From their attire, and then also, if you read the names around the base, you can see they're men of influence, kind of institutional influence. It's William Lloyd Garrison, Henry Ward Beecher, and John Greenleaf Whittier. And they are all looking at a woman who's carrying a child, who is presumably the fugitive, described by the, the title. and. Being a woman carrying a child, I think this is a, probably a direct allusion to this, um, the story of Eliza that Harriet Mm -hmm. has popularized and made one of the most recognizable, um, kind of like just shorthands for what is going on in the Mm -hmm. country. Now, this sculpture was made after the conclusion of the Civil War, but it's during this Reconstruction era and people are you know, solidifying the stories of that time period. So in many ways, I think Harriet is an unseen figure in this sculpture because she has connections to all of these men. We've Mm -hmm. got documentation of her letters exchanged with them relating to um, her book and anti-slavery topics. I mean, one of them is her brother for one. (laughs) And then we also have letters there's documentation of letters between these men about Harriet's writing. Mm. So her influence on these institutions is really significant. Um, And just from a, I think from a perspective of as a woman seeing this sculpture, I love that it's three men listening to a woman. (laughs)
0: doesn't happen a lot
1: (laughs) doesn't happen a lot doesn't get documented a lot but in many ways i think because of harriet's writing not only are they listening to her but they're listening to other women
0: Mm, yeah that's that's a very positive spin on it because i i i I kind of when i looked at it i sort of wondered like
1: why are we why
0: why are the three why are these three white guys here you know like it's sort of a funny thing of like it's a funny thing to focus on in this story. Like it seems like maybe certainly the least active part of a story to, to, to try to sculpt. So it's, it's, it's a strange sculpture to me in that I can't think of a lot of sculptures that deal with a person telling a story, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe there are, um, maybe there's others that I'm just not thinking of. I'm sure there are, but it's just, it's not like a super common thing. And, and, Mm -hmm. and I, I think if you compare it to say like a, a sculpture that was in the same gallery with this one and is is still in that gallery now, The Last Arrow, which is like the most dynamic, like Uh action-packed, sort of like depicting the most like exciting moment of the story. This is like the least exciting part of the story in a way, like a person escaping with a child. I could think of like so many ways I would sculpt that and I sort of wonder if it's maybe this sort of politics of the time that is sort of wanting to focus on these abolitionists and not the person who was life was in danger yeah. or like trying, trying to give them a little bit more equal weight um, in a way that I don't think somebody would necessarily do if they made this sculpture today. Like, I think that would be a very bad look for somebody to sculpt this. Everyone would kind of be like, why are you focusing on these guys quite so much? You know, not that they didn't do good things, but it's like when you look at the weight of like, there's three of them and one of her.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. And this exact scene probably didn't happen. Like, we don't even I was talking to our director yesterday She thinks those three men probably were never in the same room together.
0: Right. right. So this
1: is kind of a representation. Um,
0: It's symbolic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I I agree. I think it's interesting and a fine line that I think we have to walk at the Harriet Beecher Stowe house um, of not centering the white experience of something that was not experienced by white people.
0: Right, right. Which is like, of course, which is tricky because you're talking about a novel written by a white woman who did not personally experience slavery in the same way.
1: Exactly. And we're not at a point in our country where um, people are not able to speak for themselves. Right. And so I think it's an important pivot to make now to not maybe not put as much effort as harriet did into telling other people's stories and give them the space to tell their own stories
0: right i think like there there can be a tendency now to just sort of like see things through pretty black and white lenses of like good and bad this is not good this is bad and i think you know when you look at this stuff you can Sort of take the good, take the bad, sort of sort of see like we're talking about like this sculpture probably did a lot of good ultimately, um even if I think now looking back at it, there are these sort of tendencies to maybe. Uh, focus a little bit too much on white abolitionists which is something I've noticed in a lot of art from this time period which was ultimately anti-slavery like the work was the the political message of the work was you know something I think we would all agree with but when I look at it I kind of see like huh it's interesting that there's a lot more mm-hmm. focus given to the white abolitionists in this. Like, I, I looked at um, a painting. Uh, uh, probably it's been over a year now, but um, with uh, Christopher from the Freedom Center, we looked at our painting, mm-hmm. "The Underground Railroad," mm-hmm. and it's a very similar piece because it focuses really mostly on Levi and Catherine Coffin, yes. who are two real, you know, white abolitionists, and then the the you know freedom seekers in the painting are sort of just you know feel a little bit generic maybe they're just sort of there as set dressing or you know they're they're sort of there um to st- to surround the the sort of heroes of the story and if you look at the way the composition is set up levi is sort of higher <laughs> than everybody else this sort of eye leads you to him so you know it, I, I think there's a little bit of that going on here but i think also there there is a genuine sympathy and a genuine kind of like depiction of this woman and and in an attempt to like humanize her in the sense like the baby is, like, probably the most humanizing thing you can do, right? Like, that that really makes people connect with the person and sort of realize, like, the danger. Like, when you see somebody carrying a baby and you know, like, they've had to escape, I think that puts us sort of, like, ooh, like, mm-hmm. you connect with them. And mm-hmm. it sounds like Harriet Beecher Stowe understood that as well when she, you know, had a had Eliza escaping with a baby, too.
1: Absolutely. And that connection for Harriet as a mother, particularly to freedom seekers escaping with children. Yeah. That was kind of her entry point into the story. So, during her time in Cincinnati, she and her husband um had 6 of their 7 kids while they lived here.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a brood. I, that's a big brood. <laughs>
1: it's a big group. They um so she's growing her family and growing her writing career at the same time, which I find really encouraging as a working mom that during that phase of life, she wasn't tuned out to everything that was going on in the world around her. And during their last few years here in Cincinnati, their youngest son died during a cholera epidemic. And she later said that it was his death. He was 18 months old at the time. It was his death that helped her begin to understand in a more visceral level, what it was like to be separated from a child. And so she said it was that, I mean, her letter specifically says, you know, it was at his dying bed that I began to see what a slave mother may feel when her child is taken from her. So the way she used her, the way her own grief connected her instead of isolating her, I find really, really inspiring.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think um, you know we, uh, you sent me the label for this uh, piece as well, which I love that you sent me the label. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Music in person. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so so basically, you know, the label describes this piece as being sort of uncontroversial or like not overly sentimental. And that sort of being a part of its success in maybe reaching more people in a way that probably a piece that was maybe more truthful or more radical in its sort of depiction of... Uh, the horrors of slavery or sort of even focused maybe more on the slave might not have reached more people basically like because m- there might have been more people who said like oh, i'm not interested in that so it's like again it's like i don't think you can look at this as like totally good and bad it's like uh there's things about it that on an artistic level i kind of go uh, that, uh-huh. I-, I don't like this as much but those might be the exact reasons it's like getting to more people so yeah
1: yeah, I think it's it's portraying people as they want I mean in many ways it's portraying these men as we want them to be. We want right. them to be, you know, these safe, benevolent white men who are caring for you know individuals escaping. Um and in many ways these men did a lot of good. You know, they're all they are mixed bags all of them for sure. Um and the reality is we know their names and we don't know the name of this woman and that's part of the way history's been recorded. Right. And something that you know we're all working to shift so that people can tell their own stories and we know their names. And I think in many ways, this sculpture, with Harriet being kind of an unseen force in these scenarios, and then Cincinnati is too, because Cincinnati is the border town right. where Harriet heard all of these stories. You know, she lived here in the ramp up to the Civil War. She's mixing and mingling with people she never would have interacted with if she had stayed in New England. You know, we've, got, we've got a pro-slavery business community. We've got people like Catherine and Levi Coffin, who are you know, abolitionist activists. We've got institutions that are caught in the middle trying to appease both sides. Um, and then she takes all of that and puts it into her novel that reaches more households than any other book in the 1800s.
0: Yeah. That yeah, I I think about this a lot. Like you know, when I got married, I, I had to get married in in Pittsburgh because it was not legal to be married in Ohio yet, mm-hmm. um, for me. And when you know, I think about why that change happened radic pretty quickly, like within a year, I think it would have been legal in Ohio. Um, and I saw that change in perception towards same sex marriage. I when I think about like what made the biggest difference in like the way. Um, the average American feels about it because you know there are you know polls and things that show that like the the just general publics um attitudes changed so quickly and whenever i think about what it is i almost always go modern family like modern family in my i i have no doubt that that was like a huge part in changing a lot of like middle america's minds about basically showing a gay couple and being like just sort of normalizing it in this way that like they hadn't seen on television in a way I, I'm sure there have been others, but I don't think anything was quite the big success that that show was. Um, so I think we see this still happening today, where pop culture, popular stories that are probably not terribly realistic in some and every single aspect of them, but they have these huge influences on the culture.
1: The power of the written word in the power of stories. Interestingly, for many years, Uncle Tom's Cabin fell out of favor with kind of academic literature types because they saw it as sensationalist, you know, emotion, too emotional. Um, And it's just now starting to come back into view as one, a book that should be looked at because if nothing else of the influence that it had.
0: Right. Right.
1: And I think, I mean, in that it's important also to acknowledge the, the way that the the book and concepts and ideas from the book were distorted over time. The you know obviously the term Uncle Tom is a slur. Yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> which is an yeah. important
1: thing to it's important thing to discuss with visitors to our museum, um, and to discuss maybe why that happened. And the way that minstrel shows took the concepts of the book and ended up merging it with kind of the blackface shows that had been quite popular in the mid 19th century, um, kind of stripping away some of the, um, the radical nature of the book where in the book, the character of Tom is a young man who's sacrificing himself for the good of the other enslaved people. He spoiler alert, he dies. Um <laughs> but he it's it's in order to not reveal where some other people have gone. Um and so Harriet intends him to be a Christ-like figure and she's very overt in her Christian imagery and in her attempt to appeal to these Christian families all over the country who are not paying attention to what's happening. Um, But we see in later visual depictions in plays, in books, um, the character of Tom gets older and older and older. Hmm. And so in many ways, he's getting less and less dangerous, less and less radical. Um, And so many of those concepts have been distorted over time. I think if people would read Uncle Tom's Cabin now, they would be surprised at how fresh it feels. You know, even some of the commentary that that she had in there saying, you know, if this person were escaping over some, you know, mountains in Eastern Europe, we would say he was a hero, but he has dark skin and he's doing it here and we're suspicious of him. Right. And you're like, wow. Harriet, that is a bold thing to say in 2020. You know, much less in the 1850s.
0: I, that's one of my favorite things about reading things that are, you know, 150 years old. In this case, but um, or wait, how old is the book? I was thinking about the sculpture. Here. It is.
1: Uh,
0: it would probably be more than 150 yeah, more than 150
1: years. because it was. Yeah. She started it in. They moved away from Cincinnati in 1850. And she started writing it in 1851 or so. It was serialized okay, so for a year and then published in book form in 1852.
0: Yeah. So getting closer to 170 years or mm-hmm. so then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, you know, when you read these these old things, it's it's so fun to see how radical they can be because, you know, you you do tend to think of like, well, anything that's that old, it must be so traditional. I mean... It's one of my favorite things about Moby Dick is it's just an insane book like and I think to a lot of people they just think oh Moby Dick is a boring book you know it's a very long book which it is but uh, it's also the one of the weirdest books I've ever read you know Mm -hmm. like the way it plays with the very format of a book is just insane. So it's like, don't, don't like assume that older literature or older things are not radical or older art for that matter. You know, there's a lot of times where, um, I was just, uh, looking at, uh, some paintings by Goya in the Prado uh, Museum and it was mind-blowing to me like Mm. that he was making these paintings and these were the you know paintings he never intended the public to see so um, they were even more kind of radical and just the aggressive like they were so aggressively painted that it was almost shocking to see it and knowing you know when these were painted it it was it was crazy so you know i love looking back at the that history and seeing how people were kind of rebellious because i think that's the other thing that happens with like art and history and books and things is like we talk about it the stuff like it's good for you Mm um you know like it's it's almost like eating your vegetables or something, and it's like this doesn't feel like eating my vegetables to me. This is like fun. this is like radical. like we should talk about this stuff like it's dangerous, not like
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: it's, like it's it's like eating vegetables.
1: We had a program a couple years ago that talked about how Harriet's writing fits into the stream of civil disobedience writing, yeah, and how I mean she talks about topics like. The controversy over whether or not you should have violent or nonviolent protest, you know, whether or not there should be, you know, armed uprisings or everything should be done, you know, peacefully the way the, the like Quaker abolitionists were conducting things. Right. And you know, that's a modern conversation. And it's fascinating to see that it's actually a conversation that's been going on for hundreds of years.
0: Any other thoughts you had about this uh, artwork that we didn't say?
1: I'm glad just to have had the chance to look at it again and um, just be reminded to listen to the stories of women at the Harriet Beecher Stowe House this year. Once we get back open, we're still going through a programming year focusing on women and the connection between abolition and the march toward women's suffrage and continuing expanding voting rights. So I hope everyone will... Come on in once we're open again.
0: Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Russell. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. Just a reminder, the museum is currently closed, but when we reopen, general admission will always be free and we also offer free parking. While we're closed, we want to invite you to join our new Facebook group, Cam Connect, where we will be posting digital content and asking you to join in the conversation. You can also join the Harriet Beecher Stowe House Community Connection on Facebook as well. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musical" by Bacalau. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.